Learn these tips of the writing trade. Place these arrows in your quiver. The difference can be the distinction of what Twain called Lightning and the Lightning Bug, written by Walter Bound, published May 7th in the Writing Cooperative. Okay, why should you take advice from me, right? In an essay of mine originally called Destination Known, I wrote about how I realized I was going to become a writer and a teacher of English. I won $1,000 for this essay in the national contest. The full version is here on Medium. I've also been writing for 40 years, published in 40 publications, and I've been teaching rhetoric and composition at college and the high school level for 25 years. I'm also, I've also tried to be receptive to the world and the word for two and 50 years. First, a title or a headline is essential. The title and a subtitle, even a kicker, needs to do many things. Hook the reader and give the reader an idea as far as your subject and approach. The title needs to be creative and give a direction so the reader knows what is coming and if they are interested in the material. Your job is to make them interested, like a wiggling worm at the end of a fish hook to fish. However, the title may be the last thing you actually place in your narrative, like an ornament on a cake you have baked and iced. The title should wait like the name you were given at birth. When the baby breathes, that's when it's official, even though you may have been debating names for months, making lists and checking through baby books, names matter. My daughter's name, Madeline, came from the children's book, uh, written and illustrated by Ludwig Bellamonts. The name sounded regal and distinguished. No one calls her Maddie. Then our second daughter, we had no idea of gender, arrived and I said, that's Nancy. And my wife didn't know I was okay naming our daughter after her mother. How many 20-year-olds have the name Nancy? She's one of a kind, that woman. Name, the name of your creation may come from some great line in your narrative. The process of writing and creation has formed the line. And it's your job as the creator to divine that such line that should adorn the gates to your heaven. Just take tweezers or duh, copy and paste that line at the top. If you could think of the essay or a scene from the essay or think of yourself cinematically and create an image for the essay, that will also help hook the reader. Here's the depiction of a young man, me, with the words of great British writers swirling around my head. It helped create the title of the essay. The original title was Boring, How I Became a Writer and a Teacher. The exposition is essential, but don't linger too long. This is what I wrote in the essay. The field trip unofficially commenced at a pub in Bayswater, London, with my friend Tim O'Neill, my Rowan English professor, Dr. Edward Wolfe, and 20 other wayfarers. I was 19 and far too excited for my bulky winter clothes to contain my springs of electricity. It was the first day of a three-week literary pilgrimage of England. It was my first time in Europe. It was also the first time savoring a legal pint of Guinness. So what tricks am I using as a writer in this first paragraph? Well, number one, I have to establish setting. It's not just England, right, or London. London is our gargantuan city made of villages. I want to use specific concrete setting and name a pub in Bayswater. 
Every story has characters, so I need to create a dramatis personae. The list of people in my narrative, the major characters are first, my friend Tim, Dr. Wolf, and 20 other wayfarers. A protagonist, a hero, the main character, well, that's me. What am I like in this narrative? That's the toughest thing for many writers, especially young ones. You need to step back and, like James Brown, jump back and kiss yourself. You need to remove the self to see the self. And to be honest, I was 19, and I liked beer, and I was excited. How excited? Well, I was using a metaphor. I could lazily write, I was very excited to be in London. But why use that awful word, very? Strike it out and find a better verb, or a better metaphor or simile. So I write that I was far too excited for my bulky winter clothes to contain my springs of electricity. The springs of electricity is a metaphor, and the word springs served many purposes. It contrasts the season with winter, and using antithesis is always a great idea. And spring is also a pleasant water image, running with enthusiasm, like a mountain spring, and it's also like a mechanical object inside a bed. You know, springs in a mattress. Yeah, guys, make sure your words do many things. Number five, imagery. This one was simple. How do I look? What season is it? I could say it was December, but isn't it better to use imagery to show the season? So I just write bulky winter clothes. Connotation. There is a dictionary definition of a word. Father, daddy, papa, dad. They all contain the same definition, like home or house, but the difference is a mighty big one. That's where emotion plays a huge role. So words have a connotative connection. Why do I use the words wayfarers and pilgrimage? Well, this is England, and I want to conjure the past as a modern-day Canterbury Tales. Wayfarers sounds a lot better than students from college or passengers on the trip, right? All right, number seven. And this is all from the first paragraph, guys. Uh, anaphora. The magic of repetition of importance and the power of the trinity is essential, especially in writing comedy. The funny line, the gag, always comes at the end. Unexpectedly, right? So I repeat, it was three times, that's the anaphora, to establish the setting again and why I was there. And the gag is that it was my first time drinking, well, legally. And heading to a pub at 19 was the first thing Tim and I wanted to do. And there's my buddy Tim, uh, right there, uh, with two other wayfarers uh, who were with us on the trip. Two very nice uh, girls who are now in their 50s. Uh, I wonder what they look like now. Tim and I still look good. Uh, uh, you know, that's my opinion. Uh, use repeated keywords for seamless transitions, effective topic sentences, and vary that sentence structure. All right, here's my second paragraph in my essay. But the but the official tour started the next day at Westminster Abbey. Of course, I knew about Westminster, watching when I was 12, the marriage of Diana and Charles. I don't remember caring. My mom just had it on television. At the time of the tour, I don't even remember knowing about Poets' Corner, the burial place and place of homage to Britain's writers and luminaries like Sir Isaac Newton. All right, so what am I doing in this short paragraph? Transitions and topic sentences. So how do I connect my second paragraph seamlessly 
to the first one. That word seamlessly is very important. In the opening line, I write unofficial, so the second paragraph begins with its antithesis, its opposite, official. The official tour started the next day at Westminster Abbey. All right, number two, what is essential comes first. Because the Abbey is the most essential word, the most essential setting of the story, it has to come last. It's what stands out. Do not bury an essential word in the middle of a sentence or in the middle of a paragraph. Why so that? It gets lost. I could have written the sentence this way, watching the marriage of Diana and Charles when I was 12. But what is more essential, being 12 or Diana and Charles? Well, that's obvious. So switch the word order with the importance of the sentence. We'll talk about that when we talk about subordination. Number three, vary the sentence structure. Like notes on a score, you want high, low, and middle notes, and sharps and flats. After a long, loose, or periodic sentence that's fairly long, use a dramatically short sentence for it to stand out. I don't remember caring. For instance, as a visual, what stands out here? Right? Think of the importance as that dramatically short sentence. You can also string them together with periods rather than with coordinated conjunctions like this. Just like that. Right? Number four, antithesis. Oh, man, I love antithesis. Writers love antithesis, right? Especially when we get to Martin Luther King and uh, Frederick Douglass. Oh, my goodness. Such good stuff. Okay. I established the contact, contact of not caring about Westminster 12 with now being 19, and it's the place that will change my life. With now, the more specific setting, Poet's Corner. I also use the device of anadolopsis, which is a Greek word, for the repetition of the last word that is repeated again as the first word. The burial place and place of homage. Notice the parallel structure. The word place is pivotal. Right? The comma there is the fulcrum. It's not simply a place where people are buried. It's a place of homage. Right? You don't pronounce the H there. I'm also using a bit of assonance, repeating the word ah sound in five places. It's why great writers like Fitzgerald and Dickens would read their works aloud, listening to the cadence and musicality of their sentences. It's the reason I record my work, like I'm doing now, and then I listen back to get the notes right. Already, in reading this, I want to go back and fix a few things. All right, number five, examples. Okay. When you state something, back it up with at least one example. So I say, like Sir Isaac Newton. I could have added more, but that will come. The writers always need to be aware of word count, especially in print publications. And for your Common App, you can't go over 650 words, people. Uh, and there's a young Walter Bound, 19, uh, looking pretty much like a loser. Sorry. I'm very hard on myself there. Yes, you can use a one-sentence paragraph. I don't care what your teachers taught you in the past. Uh, you can use a one-sentence paragraph. It works. All professional writers do it. Uh, and then I write, Was it like a baseball fan not knowing about Cooperstown? This stands all by itself as a rhetorical question and an analogy and an allusion to the Baseball Hall of Fame. It's also ironic. Why should a fan of literature not know about Poets' Corner? Try to make your statements do the heavy lifting. Your readers will admire the simplicity in the complexity you have created. I know that's a paradox. 
and there's a Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame. Use backstory to interrupt the flow of your narrative and to fill in details. All right, so I'm moving away from my narrative about Poets Corner, and I want to tell the reader a little bit about me. All right, this is essential in a common app essay because you want your admissions people to know about you, and you need to reveal parts of yourself that may not be all that, you know, um, positive. All right. As a freshman, clueless to a career, I started as a business major in search of easy diamonds. The Wall Street Journal and the National Review I read in high school, mostly for you know, flash and scandal. Oh, I also wore a tie to emulate Michael J. Fox from Family Ties. Uh, a general win back then would make an impression on me. There's nothing especially stellar about my academic record. The moment was always too precious to sacrifice to the tedium of studying for the sake of a grade or the Ivy League. Writing was one of the few things that I did that I wasn't obligated to do. The reader needs to get to know the character. Well, you, right? You're, you're the hero of the story. And if it's creative nonfiction and it's you and you're the protagonist, we need some information about you. It's okay if you were a jerk in the past. Believe me, I've written many stories about how I was the uber-jerk. But that helps with your path to enlightenment and epiphany, right? So if you start low, you're going to climb up, right? Hopefully, right? So what am I doing in this paragraph? Well, I'm using alliteration, right? Clueless to a career, right? I use in a positive. I rename the noun freshman, right? And uh, so I'm using the repetition of the C. Number two, I'm using metaphor. I could have written that I started as a business major to make a lot of money, but that's boring. The reader cannot see that, right? So readers need to be able to visualize the world you are creating. But I wanted easy diamonds. I didn't want to work too hard, but the reader can see diamond sparkle, right? Number three, concrete details. I could have written that I read conservative magazines like a character from a TV show from the 1980s, but that's just awful. What magazines? What character? For what reason? Why? So I mentioned actual magazines I read in high school. And for what reason? Well, Michael J. Fox. And this is an allusion uh, to the famous TV show in the 1980s. Um, you also need to be aware of yourself. Being truthful to the reader will make the reader like you. Right? We like our characters with flaws. We like them with scars. We want them to be people and not gods right? or two-dimensional. I could have said that I was highly impressionable, but that's telling. I want to show. Instead, I show by saying a gentle wind back then would make an impression on me. And we can feel the wind with, the, with that imagery. I also use irony in this paragraph. For someone who turned to academics... I didn't care about academics when I was young. Like Huck Finn, I'd rather be having fun than studying. You know, who wouldn't? But writing for me was fun, unlike math formulas. I would actually write math formulas on the bottom of my sneakers. Sorry, I, I was cheating back then. Um, but So this is the first time I mentioned my love of writing. Don't we all hate being obligated to do something? Key connotative words are essential here. Stellar, sacrifice, studying, and sake. They're all alliterative, all right? The S. And tedium and Ivy League at the end all show how I thought. I don't, I don't really want that, right? 
it provides a window into me. So your essay really needs to be a window into you. All right, and there's uh, the Oxford Library, very beautiful place. When describing a character, use connotative words that convey personality. All right, so in this paragraph, it's all about Dr. Wolf, all right, my professor who I went to England with. So each paragraph is a mini essay in itself. Dr. Wolf taught an introductory course on British Lit. I was a sophomore and a history major, but it wasn't until I felt until I felt Dr. Wolf's infectious enthusiasm for literature that I started to entertain changing my major to English. Dr. Wolf was vested in tweed, always with a tie, even on holiday, and he stood at least two busts of palace taller than I did, with hands that could palm a globe and a pace that could rival the HMS victory. His eyebrows always looked like he'd just been walking through a stiff Yorkshire wind and possessed an endlessly retrievable Bodleian library of knowledge and tales. With Dr. Wolf as a professor, I was a scholar at Oxford or Cambridge. If one class a week with Dr. Wolf was awesome, what would be the appropriate adjective for every day for three weeks? This paragraph is all about the essential character of my story, my professor. Without him, I may not be here writing this essay, having taught at college and high school for 21 years, as well as having 42 curated pieces on Medium in March and published in over 30 print and online publications. So how do I give like, like, like the props and the applause to him? I really need to pay homage to him, right? But how? This is still all backstory. The narrative has taken a breather. Like, aren't you at Poet's Corner? Like, but wait, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a little side trip down a little like tributary off the main river. Because he taught British Lit and we're in the land of Shakespeare, I need to use connotative concrete nouns and verbs using metaphor and simile that conjure the place. So I use Vested in Tweed, HMS Victory, and Stiff Yorkshire Wind and Bodleian Library. I use the term holiday rather than vacation, and how tall was he? Why do I use holiday? Because they don't say vacation in England. And Vested in Tweed, HMS Victory, Yorkshire, well Yorkshire is in the north of England, right, known for their winds, and the HMS Victory is the fastest British ship ever, so I wanted to use British terms. He stood at least two busts of Pallas taller than I did. Pallas is an allusion to the Greek god of wisdom. It's appropriate, right? Just like Dr. Wolf. And it also shows how, how tall he was. Again, show, show, show. But show with telling concrete detail. I also use expressions like infectious enthusiasm, a good type of virus that hooked me into literature and words. It's rather an oxymoron because infection is usually always bad, right? So an oxymoron is when you have two words together that are contradictory. Like in Gatsby, uh, Meyer Wolfsheim will eat with uh, ferocious delicacy or military intelligence. Oxymoron. I end with a rhetorical question. If one class a week with Dr. Wolf was awesome, what would be the appropriate adjective for every day for three weeks? There's no answer to this. Whatever multiplication one could use for awesome is beyond the powers of imagination. But that's the influence of a powerful educator and professor. I wanted the essay to pay homage to him. And when I saw him at a restaurant, quite by chance, now much older and retired, he hugged me. I had tears. I was now a miniature version of Dr. Wolf, both literally and figuratively. 
Their narrative should have momentum as you move to the conclusion. Right, so I'm back to the narrative again. I'm back to the Mississippi. I'm back to the main river. The morning of the tour was overcast. No sun would treat us to the full effect of the stained glass. But I was surprised when the tour group entered the south transept known as Poet's Corner. I was Monsieur Dantes, suddenly stumbling upon yellow riches to become the Count of Monte Cristo. Forget about the rumors of Glastonbury tour containing the chalice. The grail appeared before me in that room. I actually teared up when I read T.S. Eliot's epitaph, The communication of the dead is tongued with fire beyond the language of the living. So what am I doing in this paragraph? Well, I'm using allusions. All right? I'm making references to other works of literature. I'm using three here. Uh, Dante's uh, Stumbling Upon Yellow Riches uh, is akin, similar to me stumbling upon uh, Poet's Corner. The Cup of the Last Supper is at Glastonbury Tour, a great place to visit in the south of England. And I use the words of Yank turned Brit, T.S. Eliot, a place uh, to, fire, to place fire underneath me as the immortality of art and language and words. Um, I think you guys have read The County Monte Cristo, right? Uh, great book. And, and read the, uh, don't read the, the, the uh, edited version or the, read the unabridged, right? I'm also using imagery. The Rose Window is famous. When we entered, based upon my very detailed journal of the trip, the sky was overcast. Such detail will be contrasted at the end. And here's Glastonbury Tour. My friend Tim and I walked up there, and it was very, very awesome. That's where they had the Glastonbury Festival, if you guys are into music, uh, by the way. So hopefully, uh, once this COVID nonsense happens, you might be able to go to Glastonbury and hear some great music. Okay. Even just some dialogue in personal narratives go a long way. And this is where, this is the only dialogue I have, I think. Are you okay? Tim asked. If I were any more okay, I'd be canonized as a saint, I replied. I need to bring my friend back, Tim. I saw I, he saw I was moved. I respond as one would, as, as if touched by God in an abbey. I was like canonized as a saint. I was feeling that good. Is it humorous? <laughs> as a comedy writer, I hope so. Is it appropriate? I hope so. Does it break the narrative flow with dialogue? Yes. So use dialogue in your story. Just don't overdo the narrative with needless, excessive dialogue that does not adv advance the plot or re re reveal the character. I'm sorry, but J.K. Rowling and Stephen King, they way overdo the dialogue. Um, sorry there, uh, Rowling and King. I know you guys are great, but you know sometimes your novels are way, 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 way too long, like The Stand from Stephen King. All right, and here's Poets Corner. All these great, famous, great names. Lewis Carroll, Henry James, Dylan Thomas, uh, Alfred Lord Tennyson, T.S. Eliot, you know. All right. Swing for the fences, but with vivid descriptive imagery, but avoid excessive purple prose. Purple prose means you're overdoing it. You're, you're just, it's, it's just too much. Swirling about me in the room were the ghosts of many Ari writers, British writers of yore, Thomas Hardy, Charles Dickens, Samuel Johnson, but not in the frosty outlines of spectral form, but in the gyrating conclave outlines of words. Geoffrey Chaucer appeared as, and gladly would he learn, and gladly teach. Edmund Spencer swirled as, for there is nothing lost that may be found if sought. Robert Browning floated as, my last duchess painted upon the wall, looking as if she were alive. And there is Alfred Lord Tennyson peeking behind the medieval carvings, depicting sensing angels. Words like nature half reveal and half conceal the soul within. A narrative essay can take breaks from storytelling, 
Here, I'm seeing the names and the burial plots of so ma many famous British authors. We're talking about the canonized of the canon, the big ones, the great ones. And I recall lines from each one that ties to my theme and my soon-to-be epiphany. Epiphany is a moment of clarity, of insight, oftentimes godly. Learn and gladly teach. Nothing lost that may be found of sought. And words like nature half reveal and half conceal the soul within. I enter into the ghostly universe of poetry here. These writers are still in the room, but like ghosts in spectral form. And they look like frosty, and they gyrate, and they swirl, and they dance around me like apparitions. And even their lines form their great works, like kind of like Ghostbusters here. Okay, here's the famous Harrods in London on Knightsbridge. Comparison and contrast can work, especially within the unity of a single paragraph. Some of the students seem bored, as if the immortal tonic ran off their crowns without penetrating their pores. Perhaps they wanted to hurry to shop at Harrods. I stood transfixed. I treat authors the way many kids treat professional baseball sluggers. My heroes do not hit grand slams. They write masterpieces that change the way I view the world and myself. I tingled. My heart raced. Arm hair. Leg hair chest hair, every strand stood erect as I murmured, Ars longa, vita brevis. Art is long, life is short. And then I found a photo uh, uh, used, you know, appropriately uh, with common license uh, that has that famous quote that's on some college. Okay, I'm heading to the grand finale here. Simply don't rush the conclusion. That's the most essential part of the narrative or the essay. It's the takeaway. It's the final thought. It's the grand finale of the fireworks. So what do I do here? I'm using contrast. So these other wayfarers, these other kids with me, they seemed bored. They didn't care about these writers. But to me, it was immortal. A tonic for all the cures and problems of the world, of my soul. But to them, it just rolled off their uh, crowns, not their heads. Because we're in England, and this is metomony for head. Heavy is the head that wears the crown or bow before the crown. It's also the parallel structure with alliteration. Ran off their crowns without penetrating their pores. I'm telling you, writing is work, and there is art here. But the more you practice the art, the better you will be. And maybe a thousand dollars richer, lol. That's how much I got for this essay. These wayfarers may just have wanted to shop. But since we're in London, I need a concrete detail. And what's the most famous store in England? Harrods. I also use an analogy. After a dramatically short sentence, I stood transfixed. I bring back baseball again. That keeps the unity of the essay. I use an analogy. I treat authors the way many kids treat professional baseball sluggers. Actually, that's, that's, that's a typo there. That should be, there's no baseballs. Um, my heroes do not hit grand slams. They write masterpieces that change the way I view the world and around me. It reveals me and what I value. I'm also using epistrophe. That's where I use the same word at the end of a sentence. Um, so after two dramatically short sentences, I tingled, my heart raced, I launched into what many great writers like Lincoln and uh, Martin Luther King and Winston Churchill do, use the opposite of anaphora and use epistrophe. The same endings of successive parallel clauses using Acidentan. No conjunctions. Right? There's no and or ors. Arm hair, leg hair, chest hair. I also use an aphorism or proverb. 
I end the paragraph with a famous proverb that I learned from Ben Franklin, Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Ars Long, life is short. This reveals my knowledge base, and it also reveals what I value, art and life, and how immortality can happen through the written word. All right, long, the conclusion need not be. I'm doing a little Yoda there. I was the last one in the room. The sun ignited the famous rose window. I finally knew my destination. I would be a writer. I would be a teacher. The conclusion should not repeat the opening. I know you've been told that. Just repeat the thesis. That's BS. Or the overt or implied thesis. Sometimes your thesis can be overt, like you can underline it, or it's implied. I'm not sure why teachers tell students to do this. Maybe because teachers aren't writers or never taught how to teach writing. But it's cookie cutter, right? It's lazy. It's regurgitation that insults the reader. I don't want what you just told me, like, in the first paragraph. Number one, so what am I doing here? I'm using a James Joyce epiphany moment. Suddenly I'm alone, like Jake Elwood and Blues Brothers at church with James Brown. He sees the light. I know my destination. And there is the title of my essay, Destination Known. I was lost, but now I'm found. All right? That's a very religious thing, but makes sense. I'm using imagery and contrast. The rose window now lights up with the sudden appearance of the sun. In the beginning, there was no sun. It was cloudy. I mean, after all, it's in England. Was it a sign from God? I don't know, but it happened, right? Number three, I use a simple, short, declarative sentence to do the trick. Don't confuse the reader. As Thoreau says, simplicity, simplicity, simplicity. And I use a naffer again. It's a great standby advice, uh, device with the words writer and teacher as the nouns that serve as parallel destinations. I would be a teacher, then I repeat the same sentence structure. I would be, I would be a writer, I would be a teacher. And there I am in class holding the bound ball. So dear reader and fellow writer, that's my insight into writing a narrative essay. I was happy with the outcome, as was my bank account, but more importantly, I was so happy when Dr. Wolf read this and he gave me that big hug. After all, teachers and professors are not treated well in modern day America. And I could, I could talk to you for days about uh, why that is true. I use examples like this and from writers like Langston Hughes, Salvation, Dick Gregory Shame, and you'll be reading these in class, and so many more that are much better than mine and examples of fine narrative essays. For my students who write college application essays, such instruction is crucial. Right? But for those here writing and hoping for more claps and readers, I hope my insight as a composition teacher, an AP Lang and Comp teacher, a journalist, and a freelance writer for 20 years has helped. The Masters in English and Rhetoric also helped, and all those great professors of mine like Dr. Wolf and Dr. Chohan. And read too. Pick up Dickens and Austin and the modern writers. Seek the magic that is being created without being seen. That's the true art. Happy writing, friends and students. Take care.